Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He is a third-degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under legendary master Hicks and Gracie. He has been a major proponent of BJJ in the U.S. since the early 90s. Welcome to the show, the hidden Jiu-Jitsu master himself, Henry Akins. Hello, sir. How's it going? Thank you for having me on. Yes, man. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. Big fan of your work for a long time. And on this show, obviously, we're going to get to your amazing career. But I also like to start off with a little bit of an origin story. So kind of like your origins, going back to Philadelphia, later kind of getting to Oklahoma and getting into your earliest memories of starting martial arts with Taekwondo. Can you start with that? Yeah, I mean, I basically started doing martial arts in Oklahoma with Taekwondo. And obviously, Oklahoma being a very, very wrestling heavy state, I always yeah. appreciated and recognized the power of grappling. But I was very much into the martial arts and kind of the culture of the martial arts. So I was always kind of enamored by wrestling. All of my friends that I was very close with all were wrestlers. And I saw how in fights and street fights, how dominant they were, even against guys way bigger, way mm -hmm. stronger. You know, the even the football players, all of the huge football players were afraid to fight wrestlers. <laughs> so I recognized that wrestling is such a dominant form of combat. And so I was kind of on the hunt for a grappling art that was martial arts based. And so I think it was it was either late 92 or early 93, I came across a videotape, an old grainy VHS tape of Gracie in action. So I don't know if you've ever seen those or if your audience has seen those, but they're awesome because it was just basically the Gracies doing challenge matches at the Torrance Academy and a lot of footage from Brazil. And so once I saw that, I was just like, man, I found it. This is what I've been looking for, you know? And that's what led me to Hickson. After watching the Gracie in Action videos, they had mentioned a few times in that that Hickson was the champion of the family. And so in 94, I think this was Thanksgiving, my Thanksgiving break of 94, I went out to LA to train with Hickson, had the experience that most people have when they first start doing jiu-jitsu, um, just completely got destroyed, felt helpless, you know, I felt like, gosh, these people can literally just do whatever they want to me. And it inspired me. It just motivated wow. me like, wow, this is so powerful. That's so amazing. It's so like, there's so much control and so much technique in this art that by the summer of 95, I had basically moved to LA to train with Hickson. Wow. And that's amazing too. Cause after you see that VHS, it was like the idea to even just uproot, I'm just going to go and find the best. That was another major factor for you, right? Train with the best and find the best. And real quick with that, it wasn't just like a hop, skip, and a jump. Oh, Hickson's available to me. You had a little story on even trying to hunt down and find the guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, early 94, like after the the second UFC, Hickson had a little bit of a falling out with the family, and he left the original Torrance Academy to go out on his own. So he had a school, if you guys have seen the documentary Choke, the old school on Pico and Sepulveda. And so that's where I first started, but he had just moved there. And back then this was, you know, in the day and age before computers, before really the internet was around, but it wasn't like everything wasn't on the internet. Right. And so we were doing yellow pages. I had to find Hicks and I called the Torrance Academy and it's interesting when I called them, I said, Hey, I'm looking for Hicks in like, you know, do you know what time he teaches classes or can I come to one of his classes? And they're like, Oh, we don't know anybody named Hickson. Oh. So I ended up finding him. My mom has a best friend that lives in Beverly Hills and her personal trainer knew a guy that basically trained at Hickson's. And so it was basically kind of, you know, I had, I literally like the first two days that I was on my Thanksgiving break, I had to hunt him down. That is crazy, man. I mean, now there's a jujitsu school every corner. 
you know, back then you're hunting people down. It wasn't like they're just, hey, I'm in the phone book. You know? <laughs> yeah. People don't realize, you know, it's, it's so crazy because people don't realize how um, easy access they have to jujitsu nowadays where, you know, like you mentioned, there's a school on every corner. And also you can learn from the best instructors in the world from the comfort of your own home. I literally had to pack up all my stuff and move 1500 miles away, leave my family, leave my friends to be able to learn it. But it was also an amazing time too, because like, obviously I got to train with Hickson when he was at his peak and just to see a lot of that stuff was really paradigm shifting for me. Unbelievable. And also an amazing coach, mentor, all the above. And I've also a friendship with Luis Heredia, all around amazing pedigree to branch into this art. What was your, I like asking this for a lot of guys too. What was your first year of jujitsu like, if you can recall? So I moved from Oklahoma to LA and literally when I moved, I knew no one in LA. So I had zero distractions. And really when I moved to LA, my sole goal was like, I'm going to get good at jujitsu. I'm going to get my black belt under Hickson, which is crazy because at the time there had not been any Americans that had ever received a black belt from Hickson. So, but I, you know. When you're like 20 years old, your brain doesn't yeah. that far into the future, right? You don't, yeah. you don't process that much information. So, yeah, I mean, the first year, literally, I would show up at the school. So the first class we had was seven in the morning. I would show up at seven in the morning, a little bit before seven, and I wouldn't leave the academy. So we'd have two classes in the morning, a seven o'clock class and an eight o'clock class. Then we had the afternoon class, and that was the class that usually Hickson was teaching and training at. Hmm. And then we had the evening classes. And so on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would show up at seven. I would leave at seven on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I would show up at seven in the morning and leave at nine at night. Um, So that was my schedule for literally the first two years that I was training because I had zero distractions. I had zero girlfriend, really no friends. All of the friends that I kind of met and made were from the school and I didn't have money either. That was the crazy thing. After a couple months, I got a job as a secretary at the school. I was making 200 bucks a week, you know, so 800 bucks a month. So I literally had enough money for a little bit of food, gas. I could pay my insurance. Car was paid off, but it was an old kind of junker. So I always saved some money in case anything happened to the car. And then enough money for rent. My rent was 400 bucks a month. So yeah, I didn't have any distractions. I didn't have any money. So I was just basically nose to the mat pretty much. Literally. <laughs> you know, I it's amazing too. Like talking with a lot of guys that has trained as long as you have, you know, you see people on the podium holding up the gold medal, you know, have all these merits behind them, so to speak, but they don't see that. No, I was on the mat 12 to 14 hours a day. I made it work. And also I'm sure you hear it with students too. Like I have a busy life. I have wife, kids, family, all this stuff. You kind of go into how like make jujitsu a priority. Like, how do I get in? I can't get in enough. Like you help people out that may feel stuck mentally in that area. Yeah. I mean, for me at that time, you know, uh, I I just made it a priority. But the other thing too, is I made sure I didn't have any distractions. You know, Mm. I wasn't really interested in anything. My goal was to get good at jujitsu. Nowadays, of course, with the internet, with everything, there's so much distractions, but again, it's so easy to progress in jujitsu because we have so much access to information. Like literally anything you want to learn, any position you want to learn about in jiu-jitsu, you can basically pull it up on YouTube, you know, and, right. and see what the best guys in the world are doing and how they're solving the problems and how they're dealing with specific issues and positions. And so, yeah, I mean, it's easier than ever 
to really get good at jujitsu. And I think you can see now, I mean, there's more people training than ever, but you can see how advanced some of the guys at the highest levels are. Yeah. It's evolved so much as well. That's another factor to having been involved in this so long. You've seen it start with old school jujitsu and the new wave style, but let's get back to basics, brother. Right? Like you go into that aspect. Look, it, it hasn't, it hasn't advanced because at the end of the day, you still have the same positions, right? There's still the mount, there's still the guard, there's still the back position, there's still half guard. There's different approaches and there's obviously different movements that people are using now, but the fundamentals are still the same, right? The fundamentals are still the same. Hey, when I'm mounted, my job is to maintain this position. They're going to do a couple different things, you know, like the kipping escape wasn't really popular when... I was coming up. Now it's become very, very popular. You know, people mm-hmm. were using the trap and roll. People were using the elbow escape, shrimping to get out of mount, but the kipping wasn't as popular. Guys were doing it. Guys were doing it, but it wasn't as refined. It wasn't like a technique that people were teaching. Most of the time people mm-hmm. thought this is just like a muscle move or a power move where they're basically bumping with their hip and they're kind of bench pressing, right? The hips. Yeah. At the end of the day, the fundamentals still remain the same. My job is to maintain the position and my job is to submit you right? There's kind of new tricky ways of people entering into the submissions, but there's not a lot of new submissions either. Like you still see the highest percentage submissions in grappling events is still what? Rear naked choke, arm bar, right? Triangle is up there. So, you know, people are still having success with kind of the fundamental, the the things that we've been doing forever. And what's all becomes new. I mean, especially with the, the Danaher death squad, I believe leading up to that was like Eddie Cummings. And it's like, Oh my gosh, he hooks and all these Ashigramis. And it's like, man, that's been around forever. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the system has been a little bit more refined, like the leg attack system, but that was around forever. You know, like back then people probably don't even remember Shudo and shoot mm-hmm. wrestling, but that was really big in Japan. And Hickson was training to fight a lot of those guys. And so we had Eric Paulson who was training with us for a while. And that was part of his whole repertoire is, you know, footlocks, heel hooks, different. Obviously, like I said, it's way more refined and intricate now with the leg positioning and how people kind of maintain position and how they entangle everything. But people were still doing those attacks back then. Yeah, it's so interesting. And you have an also very interesting and thought-provoking side of things, and that's hidden jujitsu. So people that may not know about it, or may, people do know about it, need more deep diver on this, uh, can you go into hidden jujitsu? Yeah, so basically the kind of idea behind hidden jujitsu is you have the fundamentals of jujitsu, but there's so much minute detail to be able to make kind of the basics and the fundamentals work at the highest level. And that's what's really hidden. That's a lot of times what doesn't get explained and taught. I'll give you an example. Hodger Gracie, in his match with Buchecha, he pulled guard, basically did an arm drag to the back and finished with a bow and arrow, right? So he did that to the eight-time world champion, even though Hodger is like 15 pounds lighter, 13 years older, and hadn't even competed in five years. Right. What is it? Because basically by the time you're a blue belt, you understand, you know how to arm drag, take the back and go for a bow and arrow choke. So what is allowing these guys to be able to implement the most fundamental techniques, the most basic techniques that you learn as a white belt against the guys that are the best in the world. And this is really what hidden Jiu Jitsu is all about. And 
Hickson has a term called, he uses the term invisible jujitsu a lot, right? Because there's a lot of subtleties to all the techniques to be able to apply those techniques, even against a hundred percent resisting opponent. How does he get those things to work? There's so many subtleties in it. And that's really what I think is so important to be able to teach and show people. Because a lot of times what happens is when people start to run into problems executing the techniques, they start to look for a different solution. They start to look for, okay, that didn't work. I need to learn a different technique or a new technique in order to deal with this problem instead of understanding like, hey, why didn't it work? And what adjustment do I need to make to be able to still get this technique to work, right? Against someone that's resisting. So a lot of times I always tell people, I don't have a huge breadth of knowledge in jujitsu, meaning I don't know. There's so much jujitsu out there nowadays, it's crazy. But what I have is an incredible depth of knowledge in Mm -hmm. the basics and the fundamentals. And that's really, if you look at all of the best guys in the world, you know, the guys that are head and shoulders above everyone else for the last three decades, that's what their focus has been. If you look at Hickson, his jujitsu, extremely basic, extremely fundamental. There's not, unfortunately, there's not a lot of footage of him back in the day when he was kind of at his peak, you know, everyone didn't have cameras on their phones and it was just bad etiquette to even record inside the studio. But I got to witness him destroy all of the current world champions in that time with just the fundamentals. And that's what kind of really pushed me into focusing on like, hey, if I just stick to this stuff, if I just keep practicing this stuff and really develop this stuff, you know, I know it works. I know I've seen it. But then you look at Hodger, right? Who I I think, again, most people would consider the GOAT of his era and his generation who came after Hickson. He was mauling people, you know, with the fundamentals, with the basics, right? Mounting everyone in either, you know, Ezekiel or cross collar choke. And nobody could get out of that. And then, you know, you look at now who is looking to be one of the more dominant guys, right? Is Gordon. I mean, look, his match with Andre Gavo, he passed the guard, mounted, gift wrap, take the back, rear naked choke. So that like what he's doing when you explain it is really simple. Like he passed the guard, mounted, right? Yeah. Set up a gift wrap, took the back and then finished with a rear naked choke. But all the little adjustments that are going on in the meantime, while the person is trying to resist, while they're trying to counter, while they're trying to escape, that's the beauty of jujitsu. That's what really makes things work is the subtle things, the small things. It's not the big technique. It's not like, Hey, let me show you how to do a rear naked choke and you're going to be able to do it to everyone. It's how do you apply it in the environment where someone is trying to hundred percent stop you. And that's what I I love about jujitsu the most. There's not many other martial arts or combative sports or whatnot or self-defense that you can say, I'm going to battle test this 100% before it's actually in the street. And also like some people these days, as far as training goes, and there is so much information available, they get almost like, like technique crazy. And I love that you said it's all the top guys. They are doing those basics and having witnessed it firsthand. I wanted to ask you what made or makes Hicks and Gracie the best. What made him so amazing? You saw it first, Hank. You tell us. His mind, his confidence. Um, and a big part of that comes from the training methodologies. 
how we trained is so different than how I see most people train. It's kind of interesting because I hear the Danaher guys. And even I read an article not long ago from, I guess, Craig Jones, when they asked him, what was the difference in him when he transitioned to training with the Danaher guys is the positional training. So he said, before I was able to escape positions, but I didn't really know what I was doing. But because we do so much positional training, which is very, very hyper-focused training, mm-hmm. he really has a deep level of understanding of every position he ends up in. And he knows exactly how to deal with all of those situations. And so that was one thing Hickson was really big on is positional training. Even Hodger came out with a video not long ago with Bernardo Faria, I think it was about a year ago where he mentioned in his match with Buchecha, 90% of his training was positional training for that match, which is really, really interesting. Where I think a lot of schools, you don't see them focus so much on the positional training. Most schools that I go around to see, they're, they're more interested. It's more fun for them to just open roll, right? Just slap hands and roll for five minutes or roll for eight minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. But the positional training is so important. And then the other thing that was really huge with Hickson is he would always, at a certain point, when things started to get too easy for him, he would handicap himself. So in the trainings, he would always figure out a way how to make the training harder on himself, which is really, really interesting because, you know, I had a conversation with him one time. I said, Hickson, like, you've been the best in the world for the last 15 years, you know, nobody can tap you out. Like, you know, he, he would go around doing seminars where he would literally let guys lock in a fully locked in rear naked choke, tie his hands in his pants and say, go let them squeeze. And he would get out that level of confidence in his technique, that level of confidence in his understanding of the position and how to deal with the positions. And so I said, you know, what, who do you train with to get better? And he said, I just train with you guys, my students, you know, but one of the things that he was always doing, which is really interesting, like sometimes I would see him, he would be training and, you know, guard and he would tie one hand in his belt or he would tie two hands in his belt. Or sometimes he would train and say, okay, what do you want me to catch you with? Okay. And so now I'd say like arm lock on my left arm you know, or Uma Plata on my, like, I try to come up with the hardest, craziest thing, like the most complicated thing, like, okay. And he would do it right time and time again. Or sometimes he would just go for one specific technique. Like today I'm just doing Uma Plata or today I'm just doing footlock, you know, and then he would go through everyone. He would shark tank himself. So he would literally sit in the middle of the mat for two hours And there'd be like 25, 30 people lined up on the mat. And he would just sit in the middle and basically shark tank himself. He wouldn't even step off to get a drink of water. So for two hours, just training with fresh guy after fresh guy, tapping everyone out like five or six times, you know? So that was his training too. Like his efficiency with jujitsu was unparalleled, right? Like it's so hard to get him tired. The efficiency with his jujitsu and his understanding of breathing and how to pace himself so that was a huge, and he gives a lot of credit to that as well. If his success in jujitsu is that people could just never keep his pace. Eventually everyone gets tired and he would just be cruising the whole time. And then people, you know, in the beginning, they're fresh, they're hard. And then after like, you know, seven minute mark, eight minute mark, people start to go down because they can't keep his pace and he would just keep cruising. 
Oh man, that's unbelievable. Because most guys, I think they feel it probably the most in competition because they tend to naturally, unbeknownst to themselves, even go harder than, you know, grab harder. And next thing you know, they're, oh, I can't breathe good. And I'm just not used to it. You go into the importance of energy expenditure and management and breathing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, breath is life, right? And so breathing, understanding breathing is so important, how to breathe effectively, how to breathe. And your breathing muscles are just like any other muscles your breathing muscles get tired over time. And so there's definitely a lot of things that people can do to develop their breath work. I mean, one of the big things with jujitsu has always been about efficiency. And, you know, you look at the black belt matches, a 10 minute match is a very, very long round, right? If you look at MMA, MMA rounds are five minute rounds. If you look at boxing, it's a three minute, right? And so a 10 minute round is quite a bit of time you're not able to really go 100% for 10 minutes. There's not a lot of athletes that can basically put on 100% pace for 10 minutes. And so you have to manage that, manage your pace. And with that, also manage your breathing, making sure that your body stays oxygenated, make sure that you have the energy to keep going, keep going at a certain pace. And so I think that was really a, a huge thing for Hickson is that breath work, understanding breath work, understanding how to, basically expel because a lot of the breathing when it comes to the muscles is focused on the contraction of the diaphragm, which is basically expelling the carbon dioxide that's built up in your body so that when you take a new breath in, you're basically filling up your lungs with like oxygen again, right? It's amazing. Yeah. So most of the breathwork stuff is about breathing out. And if people have ever seen that footage of him doing the exercise, Like basically what he's doing is he's clearing his lungs out. And then he basically, it's like a form of kind of holding his breath and doing diaphragm control, right? Like moving the diaphragm around and stuff like that. So, but yeah, with breath work, it's so important because a lot of times what's interesting is people's breathing muscles will get tired before their actual physical muscles, right? Interesting. So just being able to kind of keep pace with your breathing is super important, especially at the high. And I think that's one area where it's kind of there hasn't been much focus on for athletes developing you hear about it from time to time but you don't it's not widely regarded right it's not like widely like hey everyone's doing breath work and breathing exercise but it it has a chance to significantly increase your performance and do you remember when that kicked in for you like the game change moment on that it really started getting more cognizant with you while you're rolling well we'd always do this thing when we're training and we're starting to get tired and you'll see it if you watch the old Gracie in action videos, you'll hear them doing this like. So it's basically two to three breaths out, right? So they say on a normal breath out, what happens is your body normally expels about 30% of your lung capacity. And so what you think about is like when it comes to breathing, your lungs are filling up with carbon dioxide and you need to expel that out to get fresh oxygen in. So when I'm only exhaling 30% on each breath, that's not a lot, right? And so like when you hear people doing that, when guys are doing that, like, again, I, you'll hear it on a lot of the old Gracie and action stuff where they're like. So the idea is when it's time to breathe, you want to focus on the exhale. So the idea is how do I exhale 
of this carbon dioxide. How do I clear my lungs from this carbon dioxide so I can start to get fresh oxygen in instead of like people do it in reverse. They think like, oh my God, I'm tired. I need to breathe They're They're trying to suck air in when their lungs are already full of carbon dioxide, right? You need to get that out before you can get fresh oxygen back in, right? That's such a game-changing concept. So basic, but if you don't think with it, because yeah, I already focus on, I need air in, air in. It's like, man, there's too much volume of the bad stuff. You got to breathe that out. Wow. Yeah, I love that. And so what's interesting going into the different aspects of training, I, I feel like, like a lot of people, you know, you always hear technique over strength. And in the beginning, you have lack of technique, and therefore people naturally just put more umph and strength and they lose themselves. People listening, maybe they're within their first year or two of jujitsu. What can help them in that mindset in that regard? Yeah, I mean, you know, people always have a goal. They're trying to achieve something and they always feel like, hey, if I use, I'm trying to get this to work. And if I use a little bit more effort or a little bit more strength, it might work. But it really stops you from being able to refine the technique. The beautiful thing about jujitsu and the amazing thing about jujitsu is at the high level, everything is effortless. Everything starts to become effortless. A part of that, a re, one of the reasons for that is timing, right? Like, mm -hmm. so your job is to use the opportunities that present themselves. You want to basically use the right technique at the right time, and it should be effortless. So a lot of times people have the timing wrong, but also the refinement in the technique. So we know that the techniques work. We've battle tested all of these techniques. And so like, you know, escaping cross-eyed when they're holding with a certain grip, like, hey, I should be able to get out. This technique should work. And the idea is always how to make this effortless. And so one of the big things, even for me, the last 10 years, I always tell people, like, you want to train using the least amount of strength possible. One of the things I saw with Hickson is he was able to submit like the current world champions, guys that were like in their 20s. When, and this is when he was in late 30s and 40s. He was submitting these guys multiple times in a five-minute round or a six, seven-minute round, multiple times without even breaking a sweat, barely breaking a sweat, right? And to me, that was always like, that's insane. Yes. You can, you know, that's another level. That's for me what I consider mastery, right? When you can completely dominate another human being that's highly skilled, that knows what you're trying to do and do it without wasting energy, that's really another level of mastery. And so if you only train using strength, that's what your jujitsu will look like. Mm. That's the only expression you will know, right? So it's so important to try to take all of the strength out of it when you train. Try to be as loose and relaxed as possible for, for multiple reasons, not only for conservation of energy, but to really refine the technique. Because especially a lot of times when we're first starting out, yes, we try to tend to power through things which will dramatically slow down the rate at which you progress in jujitsu. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah. And the economy of motion, all that. So good. Now I got to admit, I've never met you before. I've never trained with you, which I would love to change that. I'd love to train with you one day, buddy. I'm just getting claustrophobic talking to you because all your weight distribution, you have some amazing online training as well. You have a bunch of great BJJ fanatics, in particular, the Scarfold, the Soul Stealer, appropriately named. Can you go into how to make yourself feel like a 400-pound gorilla? I mean, so it's very simple, actually. The basic idea is anytime you're training with someone, and this not only happens from on top, but it's primarily on top. I want, by understanding weight distribution, by understanding how to use your weight, 
you're able to create free pressure, right? We're able to basically create pressure on our opponent, which does a lot of things. Not only does it affect their breathing. So if I'm putting enough weight on their chest because the lungs need to expand in order for you to breathe, right? Mm -hmm. It basically makes it harder for the lungs to expand, especially for people that don't train any breathing, right? Imagine, you know, trying to, when your lungs are trying to expand, imagine trying to put a hundred pounds or 200 pounds on top of that. And even if they are able to expand over time, your lungs will get tired from having to move that weight. So not only does it do that, but it also helps to create connection and slows people down dramatically. Right. So like an example I always give is imagine if I go, you know, have you go outside and do sprints easy. Right. Most people do 10 sprints back and forth, you know, 25 yards or whatever. Not a big deal. But if I put a hundred pound weight vest on you and I had you do the same thing. A, it's going to slow you down quite a bit and B, you're going to get tired much quicker. And so that's really what the weight distribution is about is being as efficient as I can be and making my opponent tired much quicker than he would normally get tired. And we know that in combat sports and athletics in general, once you start to get tired, your performance dramatically drops. That's the whole idea behind weight distribution. And the nice thing with weight distribution is it doesn't matter really how much you weigh. It's just whether you're using your weight or not, whether you're using your weight efficiently. So even if you're a hundred pounds, are you forcing your opponent every time they move to carry or move a hundred pounds or are you not? And so the principle behind that is when you're on top of people, for the most part, I don't want to be on my knees. I don't want to be on my butt and I don't want to be on my elbows. So normally I'm on my toes and my weight is focused on my opponent. And I'll shift my weight and move my weight around depending on what position it is and where I feel the person trying to move. I'll automatically like lean into that place where they're trying to move or where I know they need to move just because it's free. It's free pressure and it makes it harder for them. So it'll slow them down and make it much harder for them to do what they want to do. That's amazing. And, and the sweetest sound in jujitsu for us is they're grunting. That's music to you. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to also talk about the subject of your self-defense mindset versus sport. And you can kick this whole section off for us with a crazy dude named Kung Fu Joe. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was kind of the game changer for me. It was more so that make sure that jujitsu works, right? I need to make sure that what I'm doing really works because there's so much disillusionment in so many martial arts. So I'll tell you the story of Kung Fu Joe to the audience. I was a white belt at the time, and this is maybe two or three months after I started training. This is a seven o'clock class early morning. This guy would come in, and the first day he came in, he was kind of watching the class. It was basically all the same room. It was just a big room, and there's just a railing that divides like people that are watching from the class. So he would just leaning on the railing, watching the class. You know, the instructor would show a technique, and he'd be like. Just making like very rude gestures, not so much comments, but just being like a little bit loud and obnoxious. And so the third day he comes in and he's doing this. And But this day he's like, he brought flying stars and he's throwing flying stars into this wooden wall. So that school on Pico. Well, like shurikens or something? Yeah. Oh my God. Stars. Give me a break. So um, that's, why, that's why we call him Kung Fu Joe, but... Um, <laughs> So he's throwing flying stars and so, and just doing the same stuff, right? And so the instructor says, Hey, what is your problem? What is the deal? Like, you've been coming here the last few days and being very rude and disrespectful while I'm teaching. Are you here to fight? 
And back in those days, we still had quite a bit of challenge matches going on. Mm. And this is the early days of the UFC. So it was kind of before jujitsu had really established itself as kind of like a very, very dominant martial art. There was all these other martial artists that were still trying to test themselves. And it was actually just a few years prior that Horian Gracie made that challenge in Playboy magazine. He offered a challenge. Anyone that wants to come in and fight one of the Gracies, if you win, you get $100,000. Wow. So there was a lot of challenge matches going on, right? And that was kind of a foundation for basically UFC. Mm-hmm. So he goes, yeah, I want to fight. The instructor, his name is Jason, looked at this guy named Joe, another uh, a different Joe, who was taking the class and Joe had been training. Joe was a white belt, but he had been training a few months longer than me, you know, and he was a lot bigger than me. At the time I was like 160 and Joe was about 185 and this Kung Fu Joe guy was about 185. So he's like, Joe, take your gi off. You're going to fight this guy. Right. So he just like one of the students take the gi off. And literally I saw Joe just like freeze. I literally looked at his face. I looked over at him. I'm like, yes, this is awesome. And he just froze. <laughs> oh, no. like, like fear, like, no, not me. And so I looked at the instructor. I was like, I'll do it. Let me do it. Put me in like, coach. Thank you. Yeah. Put me in coach. So I just, I, I got to make sure it works. Right. <laughs> I moved my whole life out to LA to do this thing. So I better make sure it works. So took my gi off. We squared up, took him down, you know, right off the bat, we squared up. I took him down. He tapped right away. And the instructor's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to go. He's like, just because you're not comfortable on the ground doesn't mean you can give up right away. So he said, you guys are going to go again. Henry, this time, keep going if he tries to tap, right? Keep going. So because I didn't get him in any submission, like literally we just took him down. He hit the ground. He gave up. Oh, so he just wanted a reset button. He just gave up, right? Wanted to reset. So we squared up again. And this time he was waiting for me to clinch. So I did the same thing. Dumb. You know, I led with kind of the front stomp to the knee to close distance. And he was waiting for me. He kind of left his leg out there and then he pulled his leg back and swung. So he clipped me as I was coming in, but I still got him down and got on top of him. This time I punched him a couple of times and then caught him in an arm lock over pretty quick. It was probably no longer than, you know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And then afterwards it was crazy because he sat on the bench next to me. So afterwards I was like, got a drink of water and I'm sitting on the bench and he's sitting there next to me. And he was just like, just like sobbing, right? Like, like he wasn't sobbing, but you can see just so somber. Mm. And he said to me, he goes, man, he goes, I've been doing martial arts for 25 years and he'd done like Kung Fu and ninjutsu and all this stuff. And he goes, I always thought it would work. And I'd only been doing jiu-jitsu for two months, you know? And so at the time I was like, man, I never want to end up like this guy, Kung Fu Joe, which yeah. has this deep belief system of like, Hey, you know, I know that this stuff is going to work in a fight. And then when you actually fight someone that is willing to fight and like understands how to close distance and understands those principles, he literally got destroyed twice. Right. Severe reality check, man. It was a reality check for him. Huge. Right. It's so funny because the second time we squared up, he literally got into like this crazy stance with his leg extended out. He knew I was going to kick his knee because I did it before. Right. Mm. And he basically pulled his leg back. Yeah. So for me, it was just like, man, I always want to make sure that jujitsu, like how I'm training, I don't, I'm not training with this false sense of belief that what I'm doing is going to work in a fight. It has to be tested. I have to make sure that if I ever need to use this to protect myself 
or if I need to protect someone else, right, that it's going to work. And so that's why I, for me, I feel it's so important to train with strikes. That mm. just adds another level of realism to it. I mean, especially if you're training with the mindset of this is a martial art and we're training and we want to make sure that we can be as effective as possible on the street, then I think, you know, important to train yeah. with strikes. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely two schools of thought. You know, a lot of people get into more of the sports side of things versus the self-defense side of things. I actually, I get a lot of students that come in wanting self-defense, but they stay for the sport aspect, whatever style you're doing. If you can't actually use it in reality on the street, it's total bullshit. And here's the thing is, it, it, depends on your focus, right? Can someone that completely just only trains uh, sport jujitsu still be effective on the street? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. It's just like, can a wrestler wrestling wrestlers were, like I said, in Oklahoma wrestlers, you don't want to mess with wrestlers because they'll take you down. They'll end up on top and they're just going to pound you. Like that's not so much a martial art. It's not considered a martial art, right? Because they finish by pinning, but it allows you to control and dominate another human being. And also just the training itself, right? Just training itself helps you to be more physical. You get stronger, you get in better shape. Yeah. You're still learning how to control another human being. But we know it's optimum. If you're training to learn how to fight, then you need to train with strikes. Otherwise, you know, look at UFC fighters. Look at the way they train. Yeah. They're training grappling with strikes because that's the environment that they're training for. So when you talk about the most effective and efficient way of training for a specific criteria, right, you want to make it as real as possible. And I'm still like to this day, I've been doing it since 2004 after coaching all these years. I'm still enamored by the idea. I'm like, this guy can be like a one or two stripe or in your case, two months, but one or two stripe white belt and still just mow people over in self-defense because he's going right into it. And it's like goes back to the Gracie challenge in those days, where it's literally like clinch, simple trip, takedown, whatnot, mount, little baby punches till they go belly down and rear naked choke. And even then, into your story as well, the guys are always in disbelief. Like, oh, I got to go again. Yeah. Like, by me letting you get up, I'm being nice right now. So <laughs> I want to go to this other aspect because I think it's just fun and it's awesome as well. Good friends with Maynard from Tool. Mm. Yeah, training partners. You also had it. I believe where he went on tour once and you're like his bodyguard. Yeah. Yeah. Have you any interesting stories with that in particular, the bodyguard side of things? I mean, there's so many interesting stories, but yeah, I had the opportunity to train with them or tour with tool when I was 21 and it was when they had just released their enema album. So that was the album that really like blew them up and got them. I think when they really started going big, me and Maynard uh, have been training partners for literally we, he started a couple weeks before me in jujitsu. Wow. So we both pretty much got our blue belts at around the same time. So we've been basically really, really close friends for 28 years now. Right. So I met Maynard within the first week that I was training. It's awesome how passionate he is, even with how busy he is with all his bands and winemaking and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, imagine 21 years old. So they brought me in as security, even though I had no idea what tour security is or anything about tour security. Really, they labeled me as security, but really I was there to train with Maynard. Maynard wanted to basically, as he was on tour, he wanted to continue training. He didn't want to 
you know, be out for like two, three months and not be able to train. So that's was mostly what I was doing. And then I had certain other responsibilities. But at the time, again, you know, they were not huge like they are now. Like now they're headlining festivals. Oh, right. Like it's insane. Like it's and it's so cool to see like when I was touring with them, they were playing the 3000 to 5000 seaters. You know, now the headline Coachella or headline other festivals with 100,000 people. And you never know when you need it. There's a famous shot where the guy went on stage and made her like hit throws them, mount some. Yeah. I think he said really? all, like 15 minutes, mount, back mount, singing. Yeah. Keep singing. <laughs> I mean, the power of jujitsu is unbelievable. And yeah, and you never really know when you need it. I mean, you know, yeah. some people may live in a nice area. You, you never know. And I had Sean Patrick Flannery on the show recently. And he talked about your brother, Matt Atkins, giving his first spanking in jujitsu, so to speak. And he's like, I'm sold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My brother, my brother, Matt is older than me. He's a year and a half older than me, but he's smaller than me. So Matt was, he was always around five, seven, about 135 pounds. So always very light. I was throughout the years, different weight, but even at my lightest, I was about 160 pounds when I first started training. So Matt was always significantly lighter than me. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, like most people's experience, Sean had come from a background of martial arts. He had done striking martial arts and he had done like, I think it was karate or Tang Sudo or, and uh, I think for a lot of people that first experience definitely is a humbling experience and it either inspires you or it breaks you. Right. I've had yeah. so many people that have come in and they want to do that class and they want to roll hard and then they get completely crushed and then you never see them again. Yeah. It winds up being crazy. And Another part of the show I like to ask is whether it's now or just when you're like in competition mode or whatnot, what's an average week look like for you? Well, back, I mean, so I'm, I'm 48 now. I've been doing jiu-jitsu for 28 years since the time I was, you know, 20. So it's much different for me now, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what I notice is like hard training, hard training. I'm usually sore for like a day or two afterwards. And also I'm not... For me, the whole purpose of my training is jujitsu adds so much value to my life. Really what I'm looking for is longevity. And so in my trainings, most of my training, a lot of the training I do now will be positional training. And then maybe one or two hard trainings a week, meaning where I pick up the pace to like a seven or an eight, you know, pace wise. But for me, like, it's just a given, like today I was training with a buddy of mine and we were just starting off really light. And he goes, when was the last time you trained? I said, Oh, two weeks ago with you. Right. So he came over to my house to do private with me. And so, yeah, the last time I really rolled around with anyone was like two weeks ago. And he's like, Oh, that's funny. And like, okay, let's get some training in. And so we start off training. I said, you know, the lack of training is good and bad pros and cons because my body feels hundred percent. I have no injuries, no tweaks. Right. Mm -hmm. But also I'm out of shape. Right. Like my timing is off. My, my rhythm is off and everything. And I said, you know, that's part of the deal. Right. And then we started training and we were training at a like we were training at about a four pace. Right. And of course, like my toe gets caught in the in the <laughs> pants and then it's, it gets ripped. I get kneed in the head once when he's like running around like to, you know, try to pass the guard. So. It's just, I, and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm like, dude, this is like, this is training, right? This is a part of training. And that's, it's, it's unavoidable. You have two people that are trying to anticipate what the other person is doing. And you're trying to react to that, but you're not even sure what they're doing. Right. Yeah. So you have a little bit of chaos 
in these trainings. And so that opens up the door for just things to happen. So I was like, man, you know, getting tweaked is, is a part of training. It's just as normal as like getting tapped out and getting tired. Like that happens from time to time for me is just how do you avoid that as much as possible? Now, obviously when I'm younger, you know, like I said, the first couple of years when I was in my twenties, man, my body recovers so fast. I was training five to six classes a day. Wow. Wow. I was training, you know, five to six hours a day. And then after probably like a month or two months of that, like I would notice, I would start to really like my body would start to get sore. And then I would like every now and then I would take like a week off or two or three days off of training just to recover. But yeah, I was training like crazy, but at 48, I feel like it's very difficult for me to be able to train at that same level of intensity. Right? Interesting. And you have to adapt, right? But also my training is so much smarter now. You know, that's the thing for me is like when I train. So I always there's different things that I focus on, like, hey, what am what am I trying to develop today in my training? What am I trying to improve on today? Like so sometimes it's just like if I'm out of shape and I haven't been training like consistently for a while, I just want to get back in shape. So I'll do like a longer, smoother, you know, keep get my heart rate up training where it's mostly it's like flow rolling where I'm just exchanging positions. I'm not looking to I'm not hunting submissions. I'm not really going for the kill just so that the training lasts longer and there's less breaks, right? Some days I'm like, okay, I really want to focus on my weight distribution today. That training gets hard because not so much for me, but the training stops a lot because people get tired really fast. When you're using right. your weight, people tire out faster. Some days it's mostly positional training. Like, oh, some days I'm just playing like now one of my focuses is I need to get back to developing my bottom game. So I'm playing a lot of guard and open guard because it hasn't been my focus for quite a few years. I've been focusing on other aspects of my game. So now, okay, I'm, I really need to start to develop my open guard and close guard. And the first couple months of that, when I was training that, it was mostly just playing defense, not letting people pass. And now it's gotten to the point where I like, okay, I feel comfortable enough. I can give people a very, very hard time passing. Now I want to start to be dangerous. So now I'm starting to throw in like attacking. Now I'm starting to switch gears with my mind and be more active in attacking. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So you got your own personal goals for that day or week or whatnot. And yeah, every, yeah. every time I train, every time I get on the mat, I always have a focus. What what am I trying to improve within myself for today's training? Yeah. What is what is the goal? What is it like? Am I is it my conditioning? Is it my timing? Is it my is it a specific technique? So and that's another thing that I really learned from Hickson, and also from a lot of books that I've read on you know on developing expertise or mastery. It's really important for us to have a specific focus on what we're trying to develop. Man, I love all that. Amazing. And I want to go this side of things too, because I think it's such a healthy mindset for people because jujitsu is also a very therapeutic thing for people and it That's permeates throughout your everyday life. You had a really, really rough couple of years. I mean, obviously the horrible loss of Hoxon. Uh, you had like two other best friends that passed. I think mean, you even stopped jujitsu for a while. Can you kind of go into like how you got through that? Because a great takeaway that people listeners that are going through stuff and jujitsu is always there for you and your group how it helped you appreciate people and, and, you know, life can just go like that. You kind of go into that aspect. Yeah. I mean, look, I think everybody after a certain period of time recognizes the value and the benefit of, of training. Um, one of the things that for me, I noticed like the hardest times in my life, Hoxton's Hoxton's death was particularly difficult because it affected my training. 
mm-hmm. where he was one of my he was like one of my best training partners. And every time I would go to the gym, I would think of him and like, fuck, he's not here. Like we should be training. We should be getting our belts together. So that was particularly difficult because it, I would go and literally I would just be bawling and I wouldn't even put on my gi to train. Like I just couldn't bring myself to train. So that was particularly difficult, but other extremely difficult times, like breakups with girlfriends, right? Mm -hmm. Like those, like times where it's just heart wrenching. Like I know when I get on the mat and I start training a, I think almost every time I've ever trained, I always feel better afterwards. Right. There's so been so many times where I don't feel like training and I just don't feel motivated that day, but I just force myself to do it. And then afterwards I'm like, man, I feel so much better. I'm so glad I did it. Right. But the other thing too, I think is like when you're training, I always tell people for me, it's almost like a moving meditation. There's no time like my brain gets so distracted, like especially with cell phones and technology nowadays and YouTube and like Instagram and all this stuff, you know, that we're we're kind of surround ourselves with the news, news feeds where we're just scrolling. Jiu-Jitsu is one of the only times where like I'm so present and in the moment, like I'm not thinking about anything else. But what is happening in that moment? Because if I get distracted for a second, I'm going to get submitted, right? So like, and I'm so present with the awareness of my body, like, oh man, I can feel his foot moving here. I can feel him trying to sneak in. Oh, I feel his arm going here. Oh shoot, he's got my wrist. Like I need to, so like, you're just there. You're just there and you're present and you're in your body. You're, you're aware of like everything, the sensations going on in your body. And you're aware of like what is happening in that moment. So it allows you to forget about everything else. Just even if it's just for that hour a day, right? Like when yeah. I went through some pretty difficult breakups, I know that like just just train, just go train because at least it will be one hour of the day where you're not sulking or dwelling on whatever it is, you know, and then I know too, once I get done training, not only does it give your mind a little break from whatever is going on in your life, but you just feel better, right? You do like, for me, I got into those times where it's just like, just do one thing productive for yourself today. Right. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was always training. Hey, just do one thing that's like, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter how bad things are, do one thing good for yourself. And for me, it was always like, okay, just go to the gym, just go train, just go get some rolls in. You feel better. You got to take action to make your life better, right? You have to. And this is not just like, this is an activity I do on the side when I have time. Like I said, it permeates through your everyday life in a very healthy manner. As we're kind of closing up here, I always like to ask guys, like, what's the craziest injury you ever had? How'd you overcome it? You know, it's very motivational. But you had this crazy ass motorcycle accident and you walk away like the fucking Terminator. Uh <laughs> Real quick, just going to that, because the fact that you didn't have more hardcore injuries and how'd you bounce back for that for training? Yeah, that was that was you know what that was a tough one because that was one of those things where I literally saw my life flash before me. I basically was driving on a bike and had an SUV, like literally I made eye contact with them. They were in the turn lane. I made eye contact with them. They saw me and I kept going. And as I approached the light, I had the green. They basically tried to punch it through like right in front of me. So basically I slammed on the brakes. I locked up the brakes uh, in order not to get, otherwise I would have got T-boned by like a big suburban. Right. And I went off the bike, like my thumb got caught on the handlebar. So it ripped my thumb off and I went 
amazing. The first day that I was ever wearing a full face helmet, I used to just wear those half face, but literally as I was going off the bike, everything started going slow motion. And when my face hit the ground, so I, my hands hit first and I didn't have gloves on or any protective gear. This is like summertime in LA. So I'm in a t-shirt, right? My hands hit and then I go face first into the ground. I'm skidding on the ground. I'm sliding on the asphalt. And literally I'm thinking to myself, man, thank God I'm wearing this full face helmet. Otherwise my whole jaw would be gone. Like I would have ripped my jaw off, right? From sliding. And I just had Invisalign done. So I just spent all this (laughs) Invisalign to fix my teeth. And like, so, and literally like I'm laying there in the middle of the street and this voice in my head's like, get out of the street, get out of the street. You're going to get run over because there's cars coming up behind me. Right. So I slammed on the brakes. I go flying off. And then like I run, I get up, get off the street and basically take my helmet off. And I just notice blood all running down the side of my helmet. I'm like, oh, this is not good. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so then I look down at my thumb and my thumb is completely like, it's basically just hanging on from a ligament. Oh. So doctors at UCLA were able to sew it back together. And, but thank God uh, I go to the hospital and no broken bones. The doctors wow. were freaking out. They're like, this is crazy. You know, I, Again, I, I think jujitsu, like just the pounding on the body that you get from jujitsu, yeah. you know, people putting their weight on you, smashing you, constantly trying to, like, I definitely feel like that helps your body to develop some level of resilience, right? Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, we know that. We know that the body adapts to whatever environment and whatever stress you put on it. And so, again, I think one of the reasons why I wasn't, more injured or more, you know, even though I took a pretty, pretty hard fall and I was probably going around 45, 50, you know, before I snapped on the brakes, before I jammed on the brakes and just went flying off. So, yeah, that's yeah, absolutely insane. And yeah, miracle, man. And lasting here, any future goals? I know you have hiddenjujitsu.com. You got online training, obviously BJ's and fanatics, any future goals, anything else you want to talk about with that? No future goals for me is, um, just keep spreading jujitsu, you know, like for me, I'm so passionate about teaching jujitsu because, you know, like we just talked about not only for myself, like how much it's made my life better, how much it's improved my life. I see how much it helps other people. And for me, it always goes back to what is your legacy? Like, I want to leave the world a better place than when I came. And I know that jujitsu has such a profound impact on people mentally physically and spiritually you know i, I think yeah. it really does help people to become better human beings it for me it helped me develop so much confidence in myself i was a very shy kid when i was younger and it helped me to develop so much confidence feel better about myself just in the art and just had, having confidence around other men so it just provides so much value so for me the goal is always how do i keep sharing the art how do i get the word out there you know, especially from my videos and stuff like that on hiddenjujitsu.com and also on BJJ Fanatics, I get so much positive feedback. I feed on that, you know, like it's important for me to know that I'm making a difference with the effort that I'm putting in. It's not just a financial gain, but like, hey, it's improving people's lives. I absolutely love that. And I'm based out in Illinois. Don't you have, uh, I believe, something in Woodstock or? Yeah. Uh... One of my black belts is out there. His name is Dan Hart. He's up in Woodstock. So the school is called Alpha BJJ. And yeah, so I go there twice a year to do seminars. And they're actually just, he actually just outgrew this space in Woodstock and they're moving to a bigger location. 
Well, you should come to one of the seminars. What's the next one? Every, every six months. So we haven't announced the date of the next one yet, okay. but usually twice a year I go out there. It sells out really fast because I've been going there now for six or seven years. Hopefully they'll be in the new space the next time yeah. I come up. But yeah, and there, there's more room. I always announce like all of my seminar dates and everything like that on my Facebook and Instagram. Okay. People are interested in being able to train with me in person. Just Facebook, Instagram, Henry Akins BJJ on Instagram, Henry Akins on Facebook is hiddenjujitsu.com. So when you pop in, I'll keep an ear out for it. I'll hit you up. But man, Henry, thank you so much for taking time, man. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and just such an amazing inspirational side of things, jujitsu, your journey on it and how you promote it as well. Absolutely. I love what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.